Our passage today is Romans 11, 23 through 32. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Sojourn. If you're new with us, we didn't just happen upon Romans 11. Uh, we have been in the book of Romans for several months. We're, we're coming, we're nearing a year in the book of Romans. Um, and so this is the next passage. We do that because we trust and believe the scripture is the authoritative, God-breathed, inerrant word from God. And so we, we take it as that, as our authority standing over us to inform us and instruct every part of our lives. And because that is true, the right kind of approach to this word matters. And so as we approach God's word, let's ask him again to bless this time and, and for our hearts to be humble before him. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word. It is holy and it is true. And it's important that we see it the right way so that it might do its work among us. May we approach with great humility. And God, may you use your word to equip us, to inform us, and to instruct us, to make us the kind of people you want us to be for your glory. It's in Christ's name that we ask this. Amen. One of my favorite uh, pastors, preachers of the past, uh, is a is a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh pastor, and, and a lot of his ministry was spent at Westminster Chapel in London. And he wrote a book that caught my attention that I'd been wanting to read for a long time that I read a few years back. And it, the book was called, is called Spiritual Depression. And that caught my attention. I was drawn to it by just the, the relevance of the very words on the, the cover, Spiritual Depression. Depression is, is this ever-increasing topic of relevance. It was something that drew me for that purpose, but drew me for my own sake. Spiritual depression, like what about others, what about me? And here's a specific topic that I certainly could use some learning on. And if you know a little bit about Martin Lloyd-Jones, you, you also know that, that this is a man who he spent most of his life as a pastor, but he formally, before he did that, was a doctor. And so I was drawn to this book thinking like, here's a medical doctor become pastor is going to offer some unique insight on this that, that I could really benefit from. 
And what I discovered when I went to that book was that I didn't discover was, wasn't the, the greatest inspiration wasn't on clinical insight. The greatest discoveries weren't from some sort of diagnostic aids in spiritual depression or, or even some sort of medicinal strategies. Now, what that book did so well for my soul was to point me over and over again, chapter by chapter, to Jesus Christ. He fixed my eyes in that book, not on depression itself, but on the one who is the healer of all things, Jesus himself. The, the, the cover, spiritual depression, drew me, but what captured me and kept me was the person and work of Jesus Christ. Depression was what I thought it was about, and it is there, but it got swallowed up by Jesus' greatness. Depression was the de- occasion, but Jesus' glory was the beauty and the celebration, and that's, I think, exactly what he intended. Now, perhaps you come to Romans chapter 11 a little bit like I came to that book. You're drawn to it maybe from something you've heard about it in the past. You know that it has something to do with Israel and that's something strange to think about. Or you have some, some deep uh, you know, history that people have informed you with on, on Israel in Romans 11 that you want to know about. So maybe you've heard about it and you're interested. Or maybe you just have some vague notion of what's in this chapter and that Israel is part of it, and you want to know that content. And yet my hope is, is that like that book when we come to it, my hope is that, yeah, we might come with all those things as we come to Romans 11, but that we would remember as we go to this chapter that contains so much about Israel and the future of Israel and the salvation of Israel, my hope is, as we kind of conclude this, is that that actually is swallowed up in something much bigger. My, my hope is that while we'll see that Romans 11 has much to do with Israel, it's actually a, a chapter that's swallowed up by the mercy of God. Israel is the occasion, but the beauty and the glory and the celebration is in the mercy of God. So Paul speaks, verses 23 through 32, of the salvation of Israel, but Paul primarily speaks of the mercy of God. He's trying to show us a bit about the salvation of Israel and how that all fits into what he's been saying in chapters 9 through 11, but mostly he magnifies the mercy of God in that salvation. So we go to chapter 11, and we kind of get ready to finish it out with this great expectations. Not, not that we're going to have all the answers to all of our questions about Israel. That's not easy. But that we'll be captured and caught by the mercy of God that's so evident in these words. Now Paul, in, in verse 22, just encouraged Gentiles, believing, believing Gentiles, to know the kindness and severity of God. And both the kindness and severity of God are clear in the image that he's been drawing for them of this tree. In verse 17, wild Gentile branches are grafted on and share in the nourishing roots of this tree. They are supported by the root. There's the kindness of God. That those who are not a people could be called his people and included as his people. But in verse 20, he speaks of Israel branches that are broken off because of their unbelief. Even though they're the natural branches, they're broken off because of their unbelief. There's the severity of God. And what's astounding is that the Israel branches, that have all the advantages that he spoke of in chapter 9, verse 4. They have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, and to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. With all those advantages... With all the opportunities, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Here was a specific people who had a a word from God spoken to them by God. They they knew some of these things. And and when the 
the word of the gospel came, it went to the Gentiles first, Paul would, or the Jews first, Paul would go into synagogues first, he would get the gospel to them, and they had these opportunities to hear, and they are people who still in light of the glorious news of the Redeemer who's come, they rejected it. They rejected God. And yet still, what's astounding is that those very branches get these words in verse 23. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. He's making more and more clear as we go along that the tree is a tree of faith. And even if there's natural branches here, if they don't have faith, they're broken off. There's severity. But the branches that are outside this natural tree that are wild, if they trust, they are then put into this tree, grafted into this tree. This is a faith tree. There's also, though, the grafting of natural branches once broken off back into the tree if, and there's a really big if here that's really important. If, he says, they don't continue in unbelief. Unbelief of what? Right? Look in chapter 10, verse 18 and following. I mean, I think you can see what's really the issue at stake here. He says of Israel, have they not heard? He just said, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. He says, have they not heard? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out and he has made himself known. But Israel, they rejected him. The, the problem here, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone who is Jesus what chapter 10 has made clear is that what Israel was rejecting was Jesus Christ. It was Christ himself. He was the stone that they stumbled over. And so what Paul says in verse 23 is the only way to not continue in unbelief is for them to embrace, believe in, place their faith in this Christ that he's been speaking of. So Paul says of Israelites who once rejected Christ and the gospel, if they turn and believe in Christ, then they can be grafted back in. Now we haven't said this in a while, but it needs to be said you know, often enough, especially in passages like this that are a little bit hard to understand and obscure. Uh, I heard this from Alistair Begg first, but he says that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And here's what's abundantly plain here. That there's no concept or thought of salvation for Israel apart from faith in Jesus. There's no hint of this anywhere. Romans repeatedly, decisively puts this beyond question. That one could be justified, saved, made right in the sight of God apart from faith in Jesus. Is the very thing that Paul has been working so hard to unravel in the book of Romans. And so Israel's unbelief in Jesus was why they were broken off from the tree in the first place. And so if they continue in that unbelief, there's no way that they could be saved. Just because it says Israel is saved, and oh, we're just going to forget about all the things he's already said. That would be a poor way to read the scripture. He says Israel's unbelief was an unbelief in Jesus. That's why they were broken off. And only if they don't continue in that can they be grafted back in again. And so whatever we're going to say for the rest of this chapter, whatever could be said about any future inclusion of Israel, it has to be, it must be an inclusion by faith in order for it to be biblical. Israel wasn't, they can't be, and they will not be saved by their circumcision, 
by their physical descent, by their law and law-keeping, by any work of any kind. It is only by faith in Christ that one can be justified. Listen to verse 23. He says, even if they do not continue in their unbelief, will they be grafted in for what has to happen? Who has to have the power to graft them back in? They can't do it on their own. It's God who has the power to graft them in again. Romans has been so clear to reveal to us graciously that it is only God who saves. It is not by physical descent that you are saved. It is not by some sort of work that you are saved. And he's done this over and over and over again to make it abundantly clear to us that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And here's what's really plain and main is that God is the one who saves. There is no other one who saves. These branches that are broken off, he says, can be grafted back in again. Guess what? Branches that are broken off don't jump back up and then make the hole so that they can get grafted back into the root. That doesn't happen. It can't happen. And it's intentional, this image, to make sure that we know that that's not going to happen. It's only by the power of God. Branches can't jump up and graft themselves back in. But here's what verse 23 says. But God has the power to do that. And not only does he have the power to do it, look at verse 24. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more, lesser to greater, how much more will these, the natural branches, that is Israel, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So not only does God have the power to take broken off branches that look like they're doomed forever, to pick them back up and put them back in again. Not only does he have the power to do that, as if he's just able, like he's very willing. Totally willing. Chapters 9 through 11 have revealed to us this, this glorious picture of God, who's the sovereign God, high and above us. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts in chapters 9 through 11. He is a sovereign God. And it is his right as God to be God. It's his prerogative to be God. And part of being God is displayed in him, what we said in chapter 9. Him having mercy on whom he'll have mercy and hardening whom he'll harden. Why? That his purpose of election and calling might stand. Nothing else. It is God who saves and God alone. But that should not for a moment make any reader think that God is unwilling to show mercy. That he is unwilling to save. God is the one who makes himself known in creation so that all people under creation can know something of this God, that his invisible attributes and divine nature have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, says Romans chapter 1. And not only does he make all things so that he can be known in those things, that you can know something about God in those things, but he speaks into that creation. Think of that. He makes it and then he interprets it for us. He speaks into the middle of that creation. The nature of the book of Romans itself points us to this great reality, right? He didn't just create. He didn't just have a gospel. Like Paul comes and explains it. The nature of what Paul is doing in this very letter shows us this is a God who wants to be known because he is willing to be known. And not only does he speak into creation, he himself steps down into it and lives in it dies and is raised and then he sends his people out with the gospel so that 
All people under creation can then hear the word of Christ because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. That any of these realities is true show that, shows that this is a God who invites his creatures to know him. He is a God, in other words, who is willing to save. And the willingness of God to save is beautifully displayed in the one who is the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ himself. What did he say he came to do? I came to seek and save the lost. In other words, my heart is really willing to receive sinners. That's who he came for. Or we could say it as Paul says it in the book of Romans in chapter 5. Great verses. While we were still weak. That's a qualification, right? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Or verse 8, God shows his love and that while we were still sinners, that's the only people that Christ dies for, sinners, and yet he's willing to do just that. This is a God who not only has the power to save, but the willingness to save. And in the people of Israel, we have this clear example of a people that's, that's blatantly rebellious against him. And he says, yeah, I broke you off and I'm still willing to save you. This is consistent with the the God that has been revealed throughout the Scripture. God revealed Himself to Moses and to Israel, right, in, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, and He kind of defines Himself in a way. And what does He say of Himself? I'm the Lord, the Lord. Here's who I am. Merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And He's displaying those things in His willingness here in verse 24 to save rebellious Israel. God's mercy is on display in his willingness to graft back in branches that have once been broken off. It's that kind of mercy and willingness to display mercy in God that, that give us this trustworthy statement that Paul says that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Paul can say, you can trust that. You can trust that because here's of all the things I've seen. Here's the willingness of God to save this willingness to graft Israel back in shows us that God's not done with Israel. Indeed, that's where Paul goes next. Verse 25. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So he said, there's a mystery at work, and this is the mystery, right? Verse 11 he said, did they stumble in order that they might fall? No, God's not done with them. Here we have verse 25. There's a partial hardening that's come until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is the mystery at work. The mystery is that there's a remnant of Israel that's been saved, but mostly they are hardened. And that is God's plan for a time. There's an until in verse 25, until a certain time. And during Israel's partial hardening, the, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Fullness of verse 25 is the same word that we saw in verse 12. He says, if their trespass, speaking of the Israelites, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion, fullness, same word there as verse 25, fullness mean? In verse 12, fullness is, is contrasting with remnants. So fullness doesn't mean totality, but the full number. And it's a number that's apparently bigger than the remnant. So I think the idea of verse 12, and that's going to feed into verse 25 as well, is, is a mass. Like not, not a small, but a, a mass, a bigger number. 
And so the partial hardening of Israel is working to bring in the full number of Gentiles, the, the same ones that we saw in chapter 1. You remember chapter 1, right? I mean, maybe we want to forget it, but chapter 1 is, is where we all started. And here's the Gentiles in chapter 1. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worship created things, not the Creator. And it's them that God's bringing in. Nothing explains their inclusion but a God who will have mercy. And he is a God who will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he will have it. Here he's saying, I will have it on Gentiles. And indeed, it seems as if the concept and idea, this full inclusion, this fullness, is that it's a big number. Not totality, but it's big. Nothing explains that but the mercy of God. Paul is saying that the partial hardening is actually a magnifying of the mercy of God in the Gentiles and in their salvation. But this is a partial hardening and it is until. I think Paul hints that it's not going to last. And what does Paul do with that mystery and that reality? He checks our pride again, doesn't he? Paul reveals this mystery and he just, he just gives us another check of the pride. Right? So it's like you get on the, the flights. You know, they're going to give you the instructions in case of emergency. Here's the, the 10 things you're going to need to know. You need a buckle your seatbelt, all that. And then they're going to go through at the end. They're going to check. Make sure your seatbelt's actually checked before we take off. And he's kind of done that. He's given them the, a few things. Right? I've checked our, our pride last week. And now he's like, all right, final check here. Like, I'm going to walk through and make sure. Do you, Lest you be wise in your own eyes here, Gentiles, be careful. Mystery highlights God's mercy to the Gentiles, which is meant to mercy. God's mercy is meant to lead unbelievers to repentance, but it's meant to lead these Christians who trust in God, who believed in Christ, to stand in their faith as those who know that they are only those who are undeserving before God and have only been recipients of his mercy. He wants them to not take for granted the mercy that they are receiving during this time of partial hardening. And so he says, lest you be wise in your own eyes, let me talk to you about this mystery for a second. He's writing to a church with, we think, a majority of Gentiles in it. And he wants those Gentiles in that church to not take lightly the mercy they've received from God. And he wants those Gentiles, as will be made clear as we finish out this book in 12 through 16, those chapters to come, he wants those Gentiles to have the right posture before God, fear of God, humility before God, and the right posture before others. A humility before others. An understanding of their own reception of God's mercy before others. And a major part of that posture that they're to have toward God and others could be summed up with that very word, humility. Verse 18, don't be arrogant. Verse 20, he says, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast. Don't become proud, but fear Verse 22, note the kindness and severity of God. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own eyes. What is he doing? Promoting over and over and over again here, sprinkled through this text where we want to see other things about Israel. He's just sprinkling in there abundantly. You need to watch yourselves. You need humility. I like what Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan pastor, once said. He said, a man who is little in his own eyes will account every mercy as great. That's what Paul wants for the Gentile Christians. To account every mercy as great mercy. 
Christians are those who stand in wonder at the mercy of God to them as sinners, not who stand over others in pride and arrogance of their standing over theirs. And God's mercy here is magnified in his willingness to graft Israel back in. But Paul says, his mercy's been displayed to you. He's grafted you in in the first place as wild branches. There's this time going on right now, so don't be wise in your own eyes. Receive these mercies and count them as great. And I think we do well to use this revealed mercy to us for a time to again check our pride before we move into the rest of this chapter. The mystery... Mystery in Paul is things that were once hidden are now revealed. And this mystery explains this partial hardening that has an until that moves into a will. Right? Verse 26, right? we have an until in 25, and this is what God will do, as he says in verse 26. And he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The, the fullness of Gentiles coming in, verse 25, will do the work that God intended for it to do, and indeed prophesied for it to do, in stirring up Israel, right? Like making them jealous in the right kind of way. But notice that this happens through delay, right? So verse 25, a partial hardening has come until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a delay in this. And God mysteriously is working through delay. He works through waiting. He works through seasons. And we could scour the scripture and you're going to see all kinds of agricultural metaphors and analogies. And one of the things that those does for us is that when you, when you think of agriculture, it's like you have to have patience there. There's growth. There, there's droughts. There, there's rains. Like there's all these things that are taking place here. In other words, like there's, there's a patient thing and you can't just make something happen. It's a strange way, but it's the way that God works. It seems odd to us, and yet so often God works through delay, waiting, seasons, there's growing, or there's things that are in the soil. We can't see what's going on here, and then it sprouts out, and it's bigger than we can imagine. Those are all through the Scripture. And so at any given moment, any snapshot of anyone's life, God is working a million mercies that are unknown, unseen, but still at work. Verse 25, like Gentiles are being brought in by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and unseen, unknown to the majority of people at that time, until Paul tells us something about it, is that God is at work in that for the sake of Israel, which is amazing and merciful from this God. And so he works through delay. He does this in salvation. Elijah says, I'm the only one left. He says, no, you're not. You haven't seen. Paul says, take this thorn from me. He says, not yet. <laughs> the thorn will leave Paul, right? When he dies. <laughs> That's basically what God tells him. My grace is sufficient. He doesn't give him that. Suffering for Job. Like, hey, why am I suffering? He delays an answer. He lets him sit in it. The delay here, all of these are showing us that in the delays, in the, the times of waiting, in seasons of, of waiting, that we can trust God. That he's working a million mercies. Again, most of them likely unseen by us. And we can continue to cast ourselves upon his mercy, though we can't see it working, though it seems delayed, though it seems like all we do is wait. We can continue to cast ourselves upon the mercy of God and know that he is truly working a million things that we can't see. 
That we can take hold of the promise of of Romans 8.28, that He is working all things together for good. We don't see all those things doing that. But we can trust this God who is merciful, that He is doing that. The delay here is for the salvation of the Gentiles and, and the salvation of Israel. Apart from what He's doing in this hardening of Israel, what is Israel? Rejecting God. So this is actually, again, as we spoke of last week, good news for Israel if there's a partial hardening because apart from what he's working in and through the Gentiles for their sake, there would be a total hardening and they would be turned over to their unbelief, which is the majority. And indeed, we know they're all unrighteous before God. And so this delay is for the salvation of Gentiles and of Israel. And notice what he says in verse 26. That causes so much difficulty. Salvation for all Israel. Verse 26, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, again, the the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And this salvation for all Israel isn't apart from faith. It needs to be reiterated. It's not separated from faith in Christ. In chapter 9, Paul is so upset. He says in chapter 9, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I myself wish that I I could be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Now, what's wrong with his brothers? They're cut off from Christ. That's the issue that Paul even brought up for all these, the content of chapters 9 through 11 in the first place. They're cut off from Christ, and I'm in anguish over this. And so if there was a salvation that happened apart from Christ, then why would Paul be in such anguish in chapter 9? seems silly, and I don't think that's what's going on. So I don't think that Paul will ever conceives of salvation for all Israel apart from faith in Christ. Paul is troubled because they're rejecting Christ. They're cut off from Christ. They're cut off from the gospel. Further, we can see this in, in chapters 10. Right, look at chapter 10, verse 11. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, and there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the, name, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, is that just Lord, or do we have to know him Lord, Lord as, as Jesus Christ? And he says, well, verse 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. I mean, the context is making clear over and over and over again that Jews and Gentiles, here's what they need for salvation, faith in Christ. Or in chapter 11, verse 23, again, if they don't continue in their unbelief, then he can graft them back in again. The mystery revealed is a mystery of all of Israel saved, and it has to be read in light of the truth that salvation is only through faith in Jesus. But he does say all Israel will be saved. So we have to do something with that, right? What does that mean? I don't think that that means that every single individual of Israel, all Israel, all ethnic Israelite, without exception, for all time will be saved. If that were true, again, why would Paul have such anguish in chapter 9? Like if they were just going to be saved for being Israel, then there's no reason to get so upset about this, Paul, and have great sorrow over and over again. Like, just relax, man. Because you know this mystery that you're going to talk about in chapter 11. Like, you don't need to build up this sorrow for dramatic effect in chapter 9 if you're just going to tell us it's already relieved in chapter 11. Now, there's real sorrow and anguish in chapter 9, verse 2 and 3, because there's real cutting off from Christ that needs to be remedied in some capacity. So what does all mean? It seems that all would have to mean more than the remnant, right? So in chapter 11, verse 1, 
Paul says, has God rejected his people? No, he's been saving a remnant all along, right? That's been the argument in chapter 11. And so it seems like to talk now about all Israel to be saved here in verse 26 likely would, would seem to have a meaning more than a remnant that's already been spoken of. He, he's giving us more information, not the same information. All Israel then is somewhere between, here's what we can conclude, somewhere between all Israel without exception for all time and a remnant. Like Paul, as he was part of the remnant that is writing this letter, right? So somewhere between all without exception and a remnant. Is that sufficiently clear? <laughs> Verses 12 through 15, I think, show us more than a remnant as well. So verse 12, he says, let's consider these things. If they're trespassed, the Israelites' trespass means riches for the world. Let's, let's conceive of an idea of what something else might mean. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 15 is, is you know, like this passage kind of mirrors this passage. So verse 14, he says, in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And who are those some? He says, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their, some of their acceptance mean but life from the dead? It seems that there's this expectation built into those uh, of something more than just the remnant that he spoke of in chapter 11, verse 1. So verse 12 is full inclusion. That includes... You know, like in verse 12, it's full inclusion of the Gentiles. Verse 25, until the full numbers of the Gentile comes in. And verse 14 and 15, talk about this full inclusion of, of Israelites that, that speaks of at least some, maybe not the totality, but some. And in verses 12 and 15, this inclusion is in the opposite direction of the trespass and rejection people. The, the trespass and rejecting people of verse 12 and 15 were the majority of Israelites. So they're looking around, they're trying to make sense. Why are Israelites, by and large, rejecting the gospel and only few are receiving it? And so I think what Paul's talking about is kind of in the opposite direction, that God will save all Israel, seems to speak of more than a remnant, and maybe perhaps in the opposite direction, like now it seems like the, the minority will be those who reject Jesus, and the majority will be those who receive Jesus. All right, so we're, we're good on, on all at this point. So with all taken care of, all Israel, like here's another thing that causes lots of debate. What, what in the world, all Israel? Could this be that this Israel spoken of here in verse 26 is the Israel that is comprised of those who are saved, both Jew and Gentile? In other words, we could say that, that when he speaks of saving all of Israel in verse 26, that he's speaking of the church. Well, certainly there's some right theology built into that, Right? We could look at other places where Paul speaks about this one new man. The, the new and true Israel are those who have faith in Jesus. He's the true vine. He is the true Israel. What, the, what Israel couldn't be, he is. And all who are connected to him are rightly connected to God and the promises of God through him, right? It's like, and in one sense, he is the true Israel of God. So if you're connected Jew or Gentile, you're part of Israel as the true Israel connected to Jesus. But is that what Paul's saying here? It seems like an unnatural reading of the word Israel in this context that clearly throughout chapter 11 has been distinguishing ethnic Jews and Israelites from ethnic Gentiles. I mean, that has been abundantly clear in these chapters that he is distinguishing between the ethnicities of those two. Paul's concern as he comes to the content of chapters 9 through 11 is for what? His kinsmen. Like my actual people that I belong to as an Israelite, as a you know, like part of the tribes of uh, Israel. 
And the tree with branches, it has Gentiles grafted in and Jews broken off. That's his concern. He, he wants to know, what, what about those branches that are broken off? And so to take Israel as the church, it seems unnatural. But I will just admit that it certainly could be right. Because it does fit theologically in other places across the scripture. And so it would make sense to say, because we know of Israel as something greater than just ethnic Israel in the New Testament, that certainly maybe that, that could be what Paul is saying here. That he's going to save all of Israel. Here's how he's doing it. He saved a remnant of Jews all along the way. He's saving this full inclusion of Gentiles, and this is going to continue. And then in that way, he saves all of true Israel. Now, some take all Israel as the remnant throughout history... Because a future inclusion that Paul seems to look to in verse 25 and 26 and 7 of just ethnic Israelites contrasts with some of the stuff that Paul has said in the book of Romans so far. So Paul, he has been telling them, hey, there's, there's no advantage of the Jew over the Greek, over the Gentile in the book of Romans, right? Like They have all these things, but they're still disobedient before God. They haven't placed them in a setting that's better than the unbelieving Gentile. And so to take this, somehow this future inclusion of, of ethnic Israel seems to be like, hey, how does that fit with what Paul has said is that there's no advantage for being ethnic Jews. And so Paul, they'd say, doesn't look to a future inclusion in verses 25 and 26, but he looks to an inclusion here and now as ethnic Israel look to Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, that they're hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles Came, comes in is a hardening that's going to be until the end, but there's going to be a remnant of them saved. And so that when he thinks of all of Israel in verse 26, he's speaking of all of that remnant who have looked forward to the promises of God or when Christ have came, trusted fully in the promises of God and are included in the true Israel. And so maybe that's what they're doing. And so verse 25, when it says that until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, it's not to be read as a temporal word until, in other words, a time word. It's to be read as the manner. Like here's the manner that now the, the Israelites are going to be included in this tree. The manner is that there's full inclusion of the Gentiles and only a remnant of them looking at this and turning from their sin, believing that's the manner which God saves all of Israel. And that is certainly possible. He, he seems to be speaking of a mass of ethnic Israel included that goes beyond just what he's speaking of here and now, though. Verse 12 and 15, they, they point to something like in mass, a, a greater than a remnant. So the salvation of a remnant was what provoked Paul's sorrow and lament and most of the content of chapters 9 through 11. So I think it's unlikely that Paul just has in mind the remnant of ethnic Israel when he says, in this way, all Israel is saved. Here's what I think makes the most sense although certainly could be wrong. To take all of Israel, as verse 26 says, in this way all Israel will be saved, to take all of Israel as ethnic Israel and the future salvation of ethnic Israel. Now when we say all, all of Israel, certainly do not mean all without exception, but more like all in the sense of the opposite direction of the all that would have been rejecting Christ at the time Paul writes. So more of a, a mass. Verse 25, what it's doing is summing up, in a sense, the, the content of verses 9 through 11. And the mystery that was hidden but is now revealed it is not the future salvation of Israel. I think if you're coming to the scripture, that would be something that would be more expected. The, no, the mystery is the how the Gentiles are included in this thing and then how they fit into God's redemptive plan. All right, so one author says it this way, that the content of the mystery then 
is not merely that Israel would be saved in the future. That was quite evident in the Old Testament. What is new and distinctive is the revelation that all Israel would be saved only after the full number of Gentiles have been included in the people of God. That the until in verse 25 is to be taken temporally as a time word and leads into verse 26 where it says that all Israel will be saved in the future. And certainly those words are future. Some future words are future but not really speaking of future time. It it seems like these are future words speaking of a future time. And so we, we take that into account of well and it seems to be speaking of future salvation of a mass of ethnic Israel. So let's read verses 26 and 27 again. He says, in this way... All Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul, what he does here to support what he's saying about what I think is the future inclusion of ethnic Israel, is he goes back to the Scripture. As he does in chapters 9, 10, 11 so often, he goes to the Old Testament, and he goes to one of his favorite authors of the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. These these are pulled from Isaiah 59 and 27, where salvation of Israel is spoken of. And the context, I think, is important. It's spoken of after a time of Israel's sin and rebellion. After a time that Israel has been under the judgment of God and God pulls them out from that judgment. That's like the time that Paul writes, right? Israel's situation, as Paul writes, is that what? They are rejected by God. They are hardened. They're under a partial Pardoning. They're under the judgment of God, and, but at that same time, God is saying to them, I'm not done with you yet. So Paul says of Israel that they will be saved. That He looks to the future and says a deliverer, like, like in Isaiah and how he spoke of that, a deliverer is going to come. And we know this deliverer, again, like we, we need to read it the right way in context. And, and the deliverer could not be separated from the man Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. And he says he's going to come from Zion. And notice what he does. This deliverer, he doesn't meet Israel's needs for an earthly kingdom. Indeed, there are no hints whatsoever in this text of some sort of geopolitical resurgence of Israel. No, this deliverer doesn't meet Israel's needs for an earthly kingdom. He meets the spiritual needs that they need, they have before God for the kingdom of God. So this deliverer, what is he coming to do? He's banishing ungodliness. He's making them righteous. He's taking away sin. The banishing of ungodliness, the taking away of sin, those are only the work of the Savior in the Scripture. So again, those very words, the Scripture that he points to, point to saying like, they're not just in because they're ethnic Israel. They're in by faith in Jesus only. In verse 26, Isaiah says the Deliverer will come, and if you look it up in Isaiah 59, it says that he will come to Zion. And there's another The Masoretic text says that he will come for the sake of Zion. And yet Paul takes that here. Thanks, Paul. If this wasn't already complicated enough that you've already talked about all of Israel and we're still trying to, like our our minds are circling around that. We still don't know what to do with that. And then you you throw this in there and you say the deliverer will come from Zion. And so you have to make some decisions right there. Like, all right, is this intentional from Paul? Or is he, you know, like, is this just his... He, he got a copy that had a, a different translation. He's not bothered by it. But he says that... The deliverer will come from Zion. So here's what's done with this then, is that this then could be looked to as a possible reference to the second coming of Christ. That this future salvation of ethnic Israel that verse 26 speaks of is 
possibly going to happen at the second coming of Christ. And you could read this along with verse 15 where it says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And remember, I, I punted on life from the dead, whether that means spiritual life from the dead, which often in Romans it has some connections there with those words in verse 15. Or if he's speaking of life from the dead, like literal resurrection, which we know is a resurrection that happens in the end. So you take those together and you could point to a pretty compelling argument to say that the future salvation of ethnic Israel is upon the second coming of Christ. Again, not separated from faith in Christ, we're not doing that, but that that's the when it happens. And in this case, it's Jesus' divine work to remove unbelief and grant faith when he returns. It's also possible that these verses, when he speak, still might speaking of a future ethnic salvation of Israel, speaks entirely of Jesus' first coming. That verses 26 and 27 in these references from Isaiah speak entirely of the first coming. And that this deliverer coming, his banishing of ungodliness, this covenant that he makes, are speaking entirely as happening through the preaching of the gospel to ethnic Israel. We know that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. That is a way that means of salvation for us as people on this earth. And so the Israelites are no different. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Perhaps the full inclusion, this future salvation comes by the gospel going out. It's landing on these, those who have rejected Christ that are ethnic Jews and they believe the message of the gospel. They repent and believe and are saved. Banishing ungodliness is obedience-type language. So maybe it even appears with that language, it's, it's a, they have a chance to walk in faith. It's possible then that this could mean that there's a, a leading up to, the, the gospel goes to them and, and mass they believe, and that is kind of the thing that is leading up to, but not necessarily along with Christ's return. This could be near, as can be known to Jesus' return. I mean, near, right? A thousand years is like nothing inside of the Lord and vice, you know, like near, what does that mean in time? But it could be as near to Jesus' return as we can know while for time the Gentiles have time to repent and believe. And we just need to be cautious with all these. We need to be cautious with time. So let's, let's say we, we see this full inclusion of Israel and we, we hold to like it's not upon the second return of Christ, it's upon them hearing the gospel and at some point in history in mass they're going to believe and so that might be signaling the end of this age, right? We need to be careful with that. Here's why, because we're not good with, with tracking time, right? Like, or in other words, let's just say this. Our time and God's time vastly different, right? We are so stuck in like the here and now and immediate and, and God, a thousand years is as if a day in his sight. And so we need to be cautious with time if that's our view. We also need to be cautious with numbers. Like what number would they have to hit in order for us to signal that this is now like, oh, this is exactly the fulfillment of this. Remember, Elijah comes along, he's like, I'm the only one left. He says, no, you're not. There's 7,000. You're way off. Like we're not better than Elijah at coming up with the right kind of numbers in order to interpret these things well. So we need to be cautious with both of those things. And before we like make some, and you hear this, right? Oh, the, the Jews are now turning in this way, and so the end must be near. Or their great numbers are turning in this, so the end must be like, maybe, maybe, maybe not though, too. All that seems clear through here, and again, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Here's what's clear, that this is future, and that it's Jesus' work. It's not detached from him. Notice again what we don't want to miss in these verses. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And how will they be saved? 
It's not by making their way to God. They haven't figured out the secret. They haven't said, all right, we're going to keep the law enough. They haven't just claimed before God like, well, we were born at the right time and we're, we're offspring of Abraham. They can't make their way to God. So their future salvation comes how? By God making his way to them. And that's how any are saved. No one makes their way to God. The only way to be right with God is for God to make his way to us. This is what he does in Jesus Christ, right? In chapter 3, again, very plain. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God makes his way to us, becoming a propitiation for us so that we might have a place with God. That's how it works, or it doesn't work at all. Amen. So this is a, a tricky text, and there's lots that maybe is questionable. I hope I didn't make it more muddy than it already is, but I do want us to notice in all the whatever is clear and not clear in this text, notice the beauty and the glory. It is not found in the specifics of the salvation of Israel. It is found in the glory of God who will have mercy and save a people. That is clear. And God is willing to show mercy. He will have mercy on Israel, I think Paul states. And Paul states that that is necessary. He has to have mercy. And that's how he finishes out the text in verse 28 through 32. So we have a God who magnifies his mercy by his willingness to even graft in branches that are broken off, his willingness to receive Gentiles in a time, and his willingness to bring in Israel at a future time. This is a God who is willing to have mercy, will have mercy, and has to have mercy. And that's what Paul keeps reiterating over and over again. And so these verses, as they finish out this section, 28 through 32... Are, are kind of a recapitulation of things he's already said in chapter 11 and indeed in this text alone. So the idea of verse 25 is, is kind of restated in verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their fathers. Paul, again, he's, he's speaking to these Gentile Christians primarily here, and he says of them, like, this is a merciful time. Again, it's like he, he's checking him again, like verse 25. Don't be wise in your own sight. Know this. It's, this is their enemies for your sake. It's a merciful time. Only a God can work this way, right? Like only the sovereign God of chapters 9, 10, and 11 can work in this way. That the enmity, his toward them, don't miss that. That there's enmity from God toward the Israelites. And it's also the other way too. Theirs toward him. They've rejected him. That enmity is for the sake of what? Salvation. How do you do that? You have a merciful God. But enmity, he says, isn't the whole story of Israel. Israel, viewed as a people, viewed as a whole, is not defined solely by their enmity toward God. They're also defined by love from God toward them. God chose them not because they were great, not because they were mighty and because they were going to be the, the prominent nation in the world and he could just see their potential. He didn't do that. He chose them because he chose them. 
He, he loved them and set his love on them, not because they were so lovable. I just love how they, they're so creative. Look at the golden calf thing. That was so creative of you. Like it does, it's not what's going on. He loved them because he loved them. And this is what's going on in the life of Israel is that their story is bound up with, yes, yeah, some rebellion and hard-heartedness and some stubbornness, but also some love and election and choosing from God. And so the ground for what Paul is saying in verse 28 comes in verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God, they're, they're irrevocable. The, the gift. Things like, chapter 9, verse 4, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, those kinds of gifts. And, and the calling is, is a calling that we've seen as an effective calling. Like, he chose them to be his people, and he made it happen. They were in slavery. They couldn't make it happen. But God had chosen to be his people, and he makes it happen. It's an effective calling that God calls. And so it's been effective for true Israel for, from the time from Abraham on, right? It's always been effective. And he says it's going to continue to be that way because of me, including whatever we think of verse 26. It seems like that's included in this. The future inclusion of Israel is only a future inclusion because of verse 29, the, the calling of God, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so God, verse 29, is the one who Paul is putting up as saying, it's not because of them. God is faithful. The, the only future hope that anyone has is that God is faithful, that God is merciful. And God sustains his given and chosen relationship with Israel at his discretion and prerogative, because he's faithful, not because they are. They've broken covenant over and over again. They've rebelled against God. Here comes the new covenant in Christ. They rejected it, and God will have mercy, and he'll uphold his faithfulness, and he is displaying toward them a mercy that is necessary. Verse 30, for just as you, Gentiles, were, once, were at one time disobedient to God, remember chapter 1, suppress the truth, you, you could see some things that were true about God and creation and you took it, you twisted it, and you used it to serve your own good, whatever you wanted, whatever you thought, you served it, you used it to serve uh, worshiping created things over the creator. That's what you did with the truth. You suppressed it and turned it for you. That's your disobedience. You trusted and created things over the creator. You were at one time that, disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. It wasn't even you that did this, like, I hardened them so that I could include you. I broke some of them off so that you could be grafted in. Gentiles were the chapter one people. But he says, now you've received mercy through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And your disobedience wasn't the thing that, that made God's mercy back away. It's actually the thing that drew God's mercy. He came to you because he is merciful. But I love the description of verse 30. How about that for history? Hey, guys, guess what? You were at one time disobedient. It's not very flattering, Paul. Why you got to do that? Because that is their history. And that's the history of every single Christian, past, present, future. That's our history. We once were blind, but if we're in Christ, we now see. Or, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, he says this laundry list of sinful characteristics of people. And he says of these Corinthian Christians, such were, were some of you. That's your history, disobedience to God. But that's what you were. Here he says this, you were at one time disobedient, but now 
Now what kind of people are you? The, the we've received mercy from God kind of people. Every single Christian story is that. You once were dead in Adam, dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you're alive in Christ Jesus. You once were under the just and righteous condemnation from God the Father, but now in Christ Jesus, you have a future of only glorification through God. You once were condemned before Him, now there's no condemnation because of the work of Christ. Condemnation that you deserve gives way to the glorification that was earned for you by Christ. What explains that? Not our puny works. Not our great physical descent. Not our wisdom. We haven't figured out a divine mystery. What explains that is the mercy of God. That's what the Gentiles needed. And Paul's saying that's what Israel needs too. Verse 31. Let's reverse this a little bit. They have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. And what kind of people are they going to be? We were now, in our past, we could say we're the disobedient people and now we could be the we've received mercy from God people. He's saying the same thing that, that he's been saying in chapter 11. And he goes on and he says this in verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Paul's describing the same thing he's been doing in chapter 11. But now he's describing it a little bit more explicitly in different terms, right? And what terms are those? Terms of mercy. So what's the magnification of this passage again? Not of the specifics of Israel, but the magnification of the mercy of God. It's not establishing and in establishing their own righteousness that Israel received salvation. That's what made them stumble over the stumbling stone. Chapter 10 and 11 has told us clearly. Here's what leads to their receiving mercy. They're knowing their own disobedience before God. And in knowing their own disobedience for God, now they are primed to receive mercy from God. This is the point that all must get to in order to receive mercy. Recognizing our own disobedience. Because mercy, by its very definition, is something that is not deserved. And the recognition has to be there that I don't deserve this. Or you could never receive it. Because again, you'd be speaking about something different than mercy. Notice the disobedience in all of these stories. And indeed, Christian, this is the disobedience in your story. The disobedience doesn't turn away the mercy of God. Because again, it's mercy. It only is effective when it's not deserved. It doesn't turn away the mercy of God. It actually draws the mercy of God. And the mercy of God to draw on is there because what do we know about God? He is the one who is merciful. All through the scriptures, that's main and it's plain. And notice the actions of verse 31 and 32. It's the action of God. God has consigned all to disobedience. God has done that so that God can have mercy. It's God's work. He imprisons all under disobedience. Like he shows them. Like when you think about conviction of sin, it can be very uncomfortable, but we can notice in that moment when we're convicted of sin that this is the mercy of God at work. He consigns under sin so that he might have mercy. This is the work of God. He consigns all under sin, not all without exception here. Again, that wouldn't fit within the context either, right? And say, you know what? I'm going to consign all under sin that I might have mercy in all. That's called universalism. That clearly opposes the gospel that Paul has been laying out in the book of Romans. So it's not all without 
exception. It's all of those who he consigns, he's going to have mercy on. That is, all who look to Jesus and notice their need before him and cry out to mercy will receive it from him. The same all that recognize their sin are the same all that then recognize the mercy of God. That's the all. For all saved, here's what's part of our story, disobedience. We can look back and we can see it's ugly. And some of that disobedience, like when we think about Paul and Israel, some of that disobedience we're going to look back on and at the time we're going to think, I thought that was obedience. That's where it's hard, right? Paul was following after the Lord as hard as he knew how and that he thought was his obedience to the one true living God and now he's looking back and saying, I received mercy there because what I thought was obedience was actually disobedience and we all need to come to that place. And our story in the past includes, it's a massive part, our own disobedience. But notice what verse 32 also does. A massive part of our story is our disobedience and sin before God, how undeserving we are. But even a bigger part of our story now in Christ Jesus is the mercy of God. And I don't want you to miss both of those parts, but I also don't want you to miss the proportion of those parts. Yeah, disobedience is back there. But now... We're not the disobedience one, disobedient ones. We're the we've received mercy from God ones. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote this in Spiritual Depression. thought it would be helpful to just throw that back in. He says, if you look at the past and say, unfortunately, it's true that I was blinded by the God of this world. But thank God his grace was more abundant. He was more than sufficient. And his love and his mercy came upon me in such a way that all is forgiven. And I am what? A new man, he says. Then he concludes like this, then all is well. If you look back in your story and you see that disobedience and it seems like it's bigger than you could imagine, you need to look back with the right kind of eyes and know that, yeah, you did walk in disobedience, but what was God? He was more abundant in his mercy than you were in your sin. And because that's true, Christian, all is well. Romans 11, it's a chapter on Israel. But the glory and the beauty of Romans 11 is deeper than that. It's in the mercy of God. Paul doesn't leave us in this section with the specifics of Israel. He leaves us in the wonder of the mercy of God. Yeah, Israel's there. We'll talk about that in home groups, I'm sure. Over lunch, all those things. But let's talk about the mercy of God. That's what's magnified here. And I think that's instructive for us. He ends there. He magnifies it. We need to know about God's redemptive plan as much as possible. Some parts are hard to work out and fit into our minds, but much more is needed and much more prominence in our minds should be the mercy of God. Let's make that a conversation. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you for your word. Your word is clear. Not all portions of it are the, have and share the same clarity. But I'm so thankful that your word, in your word, it, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And here is what I want our church to know. Here's what I want my own soul to know is the mercy of God. It is so plain all throughout the scripture that you are this God who is merciful and will have mercy. Here we stand today as sinners. Have mercy upon us, God. And for those in Christ Jesus, would you encourage their heart? Because here we stand today not just as sinners any longer but as those who have received mercy, who are no longer under the condemnation that we deserve, but are destined for glorification. And in that hope and in your mercy, 
May we walk and live and move. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.